Welcome to The Lowdown, KMXT's show dedicated to giving you the up-to-date information we have available on the COVID-19 outbreak and how it's impacting life on Kodiak Island. The Lowdown will focus on facts as provided to us by local and state officials. During this edition of the show, we give you access to local physicians and public health experts with information on COVID-19 and recommendations related to it. If you have a question for our guests, please email it to lowdown at kmxt.org or call KMXT at 486-3181. morning it is wednesday the first wednesday of 2021 first wednesday of the year of promise that maybe our lives will begin to return to normal sometime this year as we gradually start to get a handle on this pandemic there surely are some signs that are positive we got a couple of vaccines already approved and some of the people in our community have been able to get their first shot with more lined up to get one this week and over the course of the next couple of weeks Our numbers seem to be going steadily down for cases reported, for hospitalizations, and for active cases. We seemingly haven't seen that spike everyone predicted was going to happen after the holidays as of yet. And school is due to resume in person next week. But the horror stories we keep hearing about what's going on in the lower 48 and globally with historic death numbers, huge spikes in cases in some areas... Uh, lack of hospital capacity and hospital capacity actually being overrun in parts of the country, and super transmissible new variants popping up everywhere with more reports of long-term effects of COVID have to give us pause to start celebrating this too early. There's still a long way to go. There's still a lot we don't know, a lot we have to deal with, and a lot of questions that remain unanswered as of yet. Today's your chance to get some of your questions answered. It's your opportunity to get a question answered. If you call 486-3181, we'll pass the question along to the panel or shoot me an email, lowdown at kmxt.org, and we'll try and get an answer before the end of the show. Again, on the panel today, we have Dr. Evan Jones from Canna, Dr. Shanna Theobald from the Kodiak Ambulatory Care Clinic, and Dr. Curtis Mortison is back with us today from the Kodiak Community Health Center. And you're all looking great. Morning. Good morning. <laughs> hey, um, how are we doing, guys? Um, let, let's. Is there anything of event that's happened in your your little worlds over the last couple of weeks you think it's important to share with folks? I mean, I I think that uh, well, first of all, it's good to be back. Uh, <laughs> um, it's. I think the big news this week is really vaccine related. And so I, I think we should definitely spend some some time talking about that because I know there's a lot of questions in the community. So that's certainly good news from my front. I was off last week though, so I may have missed a bunch and maybe Shanna and and even can get me up to date on those things. So for us, the big thing also was vaccination. We're starting to get beyond uh frontline uh workers and we're starting to vaccinate uh people over 65 and people in high risk categories we're starting to get vaccinated so it is nice to start moving in the right direction and getting more and more people protected from this disease and we'll see how fast we can get people immunized and how much we can get in of the immunizations yeah, I agree. Our clinic, um, we're doing the vaccinations as well. We do have the deep freezer available at our clinic. And um, this week, it's the phase 1A, and we're da- we've gone down to uh, tier 1, 2, and 3. 3 is kind of, you know, the urgent care and um, age 75 and older, not quite as high risk as a tier 1 and 2, um, like the, you know, critical care COVID unit providers and the long-term care facility residents. But next week, January 11th, we'll be doing age 65 and older and, um, you know, more of the emergency medicine, more of the kind of para-health professionals that will have exposure to COVID but aren't necessarily right on the front lines. So uh, we do have vaccines available in the clinic and people can call and, you know, schedule. We do have to schedule somewhat because it is a limited supply. Um, I think the island got just under 1,000 doses that's being distributed to all of the 
you know, clinics. Um, Safeway, I know, got a batch of the vaccines, and we're all trying to follow those state rules to make sure the highest risk patients and, and providers are vaccinated first. Um, so it does entail some organization and planning. So call ahead. So let's go back. It, we, we anticipated this giant spike coming after hol- the holidays, holiday travel, holiday greeting, um, people coming from off the island and families gathering, uh, people celebrating. But we haven't really seen that as of yet. Is it too early or did we get lucky? Well, I think a little bit of both right now. I think we're still a little bit early to say that we're doing good, that we got through Christmas and New Year's without a spike. Um, but it, it, I will admit, looking at the numbers, they're there, but not as much as I expected, not as much as after Thanksgiving, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, uh, you know, I was actually talking to somebody about this this morning. Um, you know, I, we, I think it is too early still. Uh, we saw the, the biggest spike from sort of Thanksgiving was about two weeks, almost a solid two weeks after the holiday. And so we're certainly not two weeks after, you know, New Year's at this point. So I think we still have some, some time to see this sort of self out. But I think that if we don't have as, as, as much of a spike, I think it probably has a lot to do with the behaviors of, of people in town. And I think that that's commendable. I think that probably that means that less people did gather together in large groups and less people did travel. Um, and, and maybe Thanksgiving was a learning experience for us and, and we, we, we did. So I'm, I, I think it's, if that does indeed be the, if that isn't the case, then I would certainly say I would commend the community for acting responsibly. It's interesting that the, all three of you, the, 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 the focus immediately is on vaccines. That's the thing we want to celebrate right now that the vaccine is here. Uh, but has it, has it dampened our ability to test or are, are we testing as much as we should be right now? It, because it still seems like if the vaccine is the, the rainbow at the end here and we need to get this many percentage of the population inoculated, um, uh, don't we still have to use those same protocols even even more uh, i would think with these new variants that they're being reported um it becomes even more critical for us to do the protective things before we count on a vaccine to get us out of this i mean i'd, I'd say you got to run this race to the end don't don't give up 100 yards short of the end of the marathon we've gone through a lot and we are seeing we're, we're getting close to the end here. Yeah, I mean, I agree that there's going to be hiccups on the way, especially depending on vaccination levels. But we, we kind of see an end in sight, at least that's possible. We, we have a vision for an ending at this point, uh, whether that's able to come true or not. It's kind of dependent on a lot of people, but we're, we're not at the end of the this battle yet. And so we need to keep a little bit vigilant and continue doing the things we've been doing for the past year, um, trying to keep ourselves safe while, while staying mentally healthy, getting out and doing the things that you should be doing with exercising and stuff like that, just to stay mentally healthy, even though the, the weather has turned dark and dreary. I guess my question is, are we still seeing an increase in demand for testing or is the demand is, are not as many people getting tested now? I would say at Canna, we are at about uh, two-thirds what we were a month ago. Um, so about a third less uh, requests for tests than we were a month ago, but still testing quite a quite a few patients, quite a few people. And I would I would echo that, um, that we're, our testing is, the volume of testing has been down. Um, I think that what you say, though, is, is really true. Yesterday, I came back and, um, you know, there was this announcement from the state that we're going to be starting to give the vaccine, you know, able to give the vaccine to this tier 1B next week. And literally the whole day was, okay, how can we change, how can we put our resources into this, right? And um, so the combination of it is the fact that we have resources going into testing, and now we want to put more resources into, um, you know, giving the immunization. I mean, those resources are going to come from somewhere. And so I think that it is, 
I think, a call to us as a medical community. I mean, we have three clinics here represented on this call. We have Safeway as a pharmacy that's, that's doing the immunization. I think it's really a call to all of us to, no one agency in town can do this alone. You know, we all need to be in it together. So, and fortunately for Kodiak, I think that we have a great deal of resources between the clinics in town, between the pharmacies to try and get this done. So I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Well, you mentioned it a little bit, even uh, the the variant, the reports on the variant, the fact that the UK is now shutting itself down for a long period of time. Um, is that a cause for concern locally? I mean, it hasn't been identified in Alaska yet, but it has been or one of the, the high, highly transmittable ones have been identified in five states now. So we kind of have to assume it's everywhere. Um, yeah, I, I think your assumption is correct. Uh, even when I heard about it the first time being in the UK, we, we don't test the individual different uh, strains. So we have no idea uh, whether maybe every single one in Kodiak has been this highly transmissible strain. Uh, we don't know um, because all we're seeing is a COVID positive. We're not seeing, we're not getting down to the different, uh, diff the differences between the different COVID strains. And so that's not as big an emphasis in the U.S. as it has been in other places, uh, trying to identify the different strains. So I, I will just tell you at this point, when I heard about it in Great Britain, I was just like, there's no sense, in some ways, there's no sense shutting down flights from Great Britain because we already we know it's already here um, once we discover it. And I think uh, it, it would not surprise me in the least if it's in Kodiak, I, but I can't tell you if it is or it isn't. I think at any point we could start seeing that surge that the UK surprisingly saw and that they're seeing in California and, you know, some other states. We're, we're not out of the woods yet and we still have to remain vigilant because any, you know, any strain can get into Kodiak at any point and then start spreading like wildfire again. So that I think that's the important message out of this. Well, doesn't that kind of lead us to a roller coaster ride as far as what we do, as far as uh, the alert level the community is at? I mean, we've been at a red level for quite a while now, and there, there sure seems to be a push to say, uh, things are great, the numbers are coming down, let's go down to a yellow or a green level. Um, doesn't that sort of open us up for allowing this to come in and bouncing right back up to a red level? Well, I mean, I think that... The, the interesting thing is it's all perspective, right? Like if we had had six, we had 16 cases reported yesterday and, um, you know, had we had that in the summer at any time, or even like in the early fall, we would have been like, wow, that's, that's a significant amount of cases. That's enough to put us into red. Like, I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting. Like your perspective shifts as you kind of get used to having more cases, but that doesn't mean that the virus is any less deadly. And or this, you know, and so I think that it's it's always that you're right. The case numbers have not been like in the 40s and 50s a day like they were back in November, but 16 in a day is still a pretty high number. And so that means there's significant amount of virus still in the community. And um, so I, I think that just I think putting it the numbers in perspective um, is is important. That's a good point because I remember when zero was the great number, you know, and one was a horrifying thing. And now we've just become used to the fact that we get 16 new cases and that doesn't make a, a dent. And we're thinking we're doing really good. Yeah. Well, let's uh, jump into some of these questions uh, that we've gotten already. Um, uh, how does the lack of testing address the idea that we haven't had the spike? We're not testing at the rate we were. That's a fact. So how does that, how does that transmit into what we're actually seeing? I think a couple different factors go into that. Uh, positive results kind of make it so more people want to be tested because we want to test the close contacts around them. So if we're having 40 positives and each one of them have been in contact with five people, that means that's 200 tests that we're, we're going to be wanting to do that that day. So just because we're having lower numbers does not mean that we don't have a good picture of what's going on. We 
are still testing people who are symptomatic in any way. Um, and we're frankly testing all the close contacts around them and we're still getting low numbers. Probably a better um, measure would be the uh, percentage of positives, which is uh, in the state of Alaska dipped below 5% recently, which is encouraging. Okay. Um, and I would say, you know, I, I agree with that kind of compounding nature of if you have more positives then you test more. Um, but I would continue to encourage people like on the, on the flip side of that, like we do, if people are symptomatic, we do want you to get tested. And um, that's really important. Um, and so don't, I, you know, I, I know there's a lot of people that are fatigued. Like I know in my family alone, uh, my kids are like, oh, we got to do the, we call it the boogie test. And so like, you know, like they're like, oh, I have to go do the boogie test. I got a runny nose. Oh no. And so I know that there's, I, I know for a fact that there's a lot of fatigue over even getting testing done for kind of like cold, you know, symptoms, but it does, it is really important for us to track kind of the disease activity on the island and also uh, potentially the need to quarantine or uh, isolate and those types of things. So I think it is really important that people still get tested if they are having symptoms. Is it true that if one person in the house is exposed and tested, it's okay, the rest of the house doesn't have to take a test? Curtis, you got personal experience with that. How do you feel about it? <laughs> um, I, I, personally, I personally feel like it's good to get everybody tested to make sure um, but there is kind of the assumption that if one person tested positive, especially if there's any symptoms at all, that probably everybody in the household has been exposed. But I think all of us, I've, I've had a family where the mom got infected and frankly, she had not removed herself from the, the household. Nobody else in the household ever turned positive and she was symptomatic. It wasn't an asymptomatic. She was symptomatic. They kind of stayed away from her a little bit, but they did manage to not pass it on to the, the husband and, and daughter. And I, I was very surprised, but we tested all the parties several times and it, it can happen that they don't get it. But just for accounting numbers of kind of having a better picture of, okay, you tested the mom and she's positive. What about the daughter and who did she run and come into contact with so that we can do better contact tracing? Well, wouldn't it also have inform us better about how to allocate the the vaccine if you had a positive test at one point in time couldn't you kind of step to the back of the queue and wait um, to get a vaccine if you are you have a 90-day period where perhaps you're not going to get it again i think i think that's the formal recommendation um is that if if you have somebody who's had uh a documented COVID infection recently within the last three months is that, um, you know, during this initial rollout of the vaccine, if, if we can prioritize those that haven't had a recent infection, because presumably there is protection um, for at least three months, um, that, that that would allow us to allocate the vaccine to people that are more vulnerable before uh, giving to that, that, that individual. Um, the fact is there's not necessarily, it's not an absolute contraindication to giving it, if, you know, if, if they, if a patient has had COVID within the last three months, it's not an absolute contraindication for them getting the vaccine, but just from a resource standpoint, it would, if you were drawing it up, you could get more people covered quicker if you had those people kind of step to the back of the line, so to speak. That That's not one of the questions that's being asked though, right? I mean, they're not, they're not saying you're excluded because you already had COVID. If you're in the category that's eligible to get it, you you can get it if you want. I can only speak to what like our clinic's doing, but this was one of the questions that was asked on the um, call. We had a community vaccine call yesterday, and um, you know they they did say it is one of the questions we ask people when they're getting their vaccine whether they've had COVID. Um, but it's like I said, it's not an absolute contraindication for them getting the vaccine. It's just something that I think we would talk to them about. Um, and so that's that's kind of going to be our strategy. I'm not sure. I'm curious what what your guys' strategies are at other clinics. 
Yeah, I was. I can't. This came up just this week with uh, somebody who's getting vaccinated. I suggested that they wait three months. Uh, the, they wanted to find out if there is an absolute contraindication. I said, you know, and I, I told them they could certainly get it. Um, it, it was a medical uh, provider. Uh, my concern personally, if I had had COVID and getting the vaccine, I think you're going to have a pretty strong reaction <laughs> since you already have some of the antibodies in your system. It'll be more like getting the second vaccine the first time. Um, but I think it's still worth doing. I think it's still worth getting vaccinated. Um, I just had a sore arm. I'll be curious to hear what people who had COVID, um, what kind of reaction they have. Um, it, it was honestly like a, a tetanus shot for me where your arm hurts for a day and that's it. Um, but if you've already had COVID, it wouldn't surprise me if you have a little bit of a fever and a headache uh, the day after. But we'll, we'll see as more people get it. I have not heard that, though. So we have, so we got the vaccine in our clinic and the, the, we healthcare providers, a lot of us already had COVID. We decided to get vaccinated anyways, partly because I think it's so important to kind of, you know, role model getting the vaccine and, and none of us had a robust immune response. I was very curious as well, thinking, you know, maybe, might, you know, my immune system might mount a crazy response to seeing the vaccine again or that S protein again. But um, so far, all of us are doing great. Just a sore arm, same thing for one day, it's gone and no other significant symptoms. And um, I think I just want to weigh in on your first question. I think testing is still really important. And um, part of it is too, is just documenting that you had that infection, like you said, for travel, for other, for, you know, just kind of knowing what our numbers are, what's going on, what your symptoms are. We're having a lot of people in our clinic right now with really weird symptoms, lots of people coming in with tingling, malaise, myalgias, all these, like just this kind of combination of vague symptoms. And if we knew that they had COVID, it would be, I think, very helpful to say, yeah, these symptoms are post-COVID. You know, we know this is, these are um, very common in a lot of people that have had COVID. Without that positive test, it's, we start doing, you know, a million dollar workup to try to figure out, okay, what's going on right now if it's not related to this virus that we know can cause these things. So I think testing is um, really important. And then, yeah, we want to use our vaccines wisely, obviously. At the same time, we also want to be able to tell patients, yes, I got it. It's, there's, you know, help talk about our experiences and, and be able to encourage as many people to get it as possible. And we do want to reach herd immunity. Herd immunity is, you know, some kind of, you've seen, your body has seen either the virus or the vaccine, and the more people we can get to that point, the safer Kodiak is going to be, the sooner we can get back to normal. What is the relationship between the number of, number, number of tests that we're doing and the positivity rate? That's a great question. Um, I don't know. I don't know that we have the numbers. I was looking on the um, EOC website to see if we are reporting Kodiak's percent positive tests. Um, and I, I can't find anything. If someone can, let me know. But in our clinic, I know we've been still doing probably 30 to 50 tests a day, which is down a little bit when we were doing like 60 plus tests a day. And our positive rate has decreased. I think yesterday we did maybe 40 or 50 tests and no positives. So we're really down. To, and, and before when we were having, you know, doing the 60 tests a day, we, I think one of our peak days, we had 12 positives. So you can see there that our positive, you know, I wish I had the exact numbers so I could, you know, give the data points, but um, definitely we are seeing a decreased percentage of positive tests. And the clinical significance of that is, you know, the more positive percent or the higher the percentage of positive tests, that, that just means that the more kind of prevalence in the community that virus is. Okay. Um, you've had experience dealing with the, the, the state's website. Now, if somebody wants to uh, set themselves up for one of these appointments, I know there was a a big brouhaha about, you know, when they rolled out the 1Bs and then all of a sudden they made it available to the 65s. There was um, there was a lot of confusion and people got in that shouldn't got in. What is, what is the protocol now and what, what's your – what how user-friendly is this 
portal that people are supposed to go to to sign themselves up to get something. And then once you get there and you make an appointment, is there a, a drop-down box that says, I want to go get my vaccine at Canna, I want to go to the health center, or you know, one of the? Uh, is there a menu that tells you that's what you're going to do? Yeah, well, so we should get that link so that you make sure you have it. Like maybe you can put it on the website, um, Mike. But the um, the website uh, through the state, it just has like a map and it has the, the different clinics in any community that um, have signed up through the state to provide the vaccine. And basically, if you click on that link, it'll give you either, you know, we haven't gotten too fancy, but it will give you like basically it'll take it to your to the website of that clinic so there's contact information um we're trying to work on it so that it would take you to a place where you can actually um sign up schedule an appointment online as opposed to calling the office even but we haven't gotten there yet um but uh so the, the website itself is actually pretty easy to navigate around it's just like you know like you wish you had like a google map up and it just has like a a, a clinic that points to like hey here's a clinic that you can go to um the um I want to come back a little bit to what you said at the start, like, um, so the state did make a big announcement on Monday where they're really expanding, you know, the people that are eligible to get the vaccine uh, that'll be starting next week. And um, I think that it's, it's, it's a great thing. It's great that we can make this more available um, and um, hopefully start working uh, hard at getting a greater percentage of our community vaccinated. Um, you know, I, I would also caution though to, for people to have a little bit of patience because it's, you know, this whole process is new for all of us. Um, the amount of people getting vaccines in a very short period of time, trying to set up, you know, the logistics around that for staffing and things like that, um, while also providing safe observation of patients after they get the vaccine. You know, these patients, after you get a this vaccine, we're supposed to be watching people for at least 15 minutes. And so it's not quite as simple as, you know, coming in and getting your flu shot you know, and, and taken off. Um, and so um, please be patient and gracious with our staff <laughs> as we try and work through this. Uh, we are trying to get the vaccine out to as many people as possible as quickly as possible. It's it's so labor intensive that we've actually had to pull staff away from other areas to the point where this is, this is scary and awful, but some doctors have been asked to room their own patients. But um, we pulled so many staff away that sometimes it might be the doc gra grabbing you from the waiting room rather than an MA. Uh, but we're trying to get people vaccinated as quickly as possible. And the people doing that have to get pulled from somewhere. We've got a lot of people at testing sites already that got pulled from other areas. So there's, there's just, it's a numbers issue at some point where the, the people have to come from somewhere. And so we're, we're, we're grabbing from everywhere we can. And, and also some logistical issues, you know, with, you know, the storage, like once you open it, we're going to be getting the Moderna vaccine. And once you open a vial, which is 10 doses, you, you're, you're, you have to use that vial within six hours. And so we're talking about actually having kind of like an on-call list of people that really want the vaccine that would be willing to come in kind of at the last minute, you know, because we, if we end up with somebody no showing, we have 20 people scheduled to get the vaccine in a day and you end up with uh, 19 given, you have an extra dose, then, you know, having somebody you can call in so you don't waste that dose. So there's, there's logistical challenges. There's the safety and monitoring challenges. It's just not the most efficient vaccine to give right now because it's relatively new and requires increased monitoring. So it is labor intensive, but believe me, there is lots of uh, there's lots of uh, thinking going on about how to do this as, as efficiently as we can, and uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if uh, between the people in this room and the clinics represented here that there's going to be some great ideas and and um, but I, I I would ask kind of the general public to be patient with the process we're we're doing the best we can to provide the safe care. Do you have enough resources locally to be able to actually continue to do the testing as well as doing the vaccinations? Well, that's why we're all in this together, right? You know, that's why I'm, I'm really happy that Safeway is stepping up and doing some of the vaccinations. Um, you know, that's really helpful. Um, I think the fact that we have Canna, the ambulatory clinic, and KCHC all giving the vaccine and all doing testing, um, you know, the fact that all those things have happened has been really good. Providence has agreed to store uh, vaccines for each of the, if the clinics need extra storage space. So they've really contributed in that way. 
Um, I know that they've done some education, I believe for the ambulatory clinic, they did some education on, on how they were doing their vaccine clinics. Um, and so it's really been a team effort. Um, you know, we're, we're stretched, but I think that people are excited about it. Shanna, you have a vaccine clinic? Um, no, but I would say rather than for now, for our clinic, rather than going through the website, because there's a lot of glitches in the actual follow, you know, you can sign up on a website, but who does that go to on the other end and who actually schedules you? I would say um, call our clinic directly. You could sign up for that, but also call our clinic directly and the we'll triage people, you know, based on, we have a list of our highest risk patients, you know, grouped by age and grouped by um, medical conditions. So we're going to try to make sure we get those people vaccinated first. And um, we can help kind of make sure that we are allocating our resources appropriately. Um, we, I think, got a batch of, I want to say, I think 20 vaccines at first from this first 975 dose from Pfizer. And then I think Providence and the local officials are kind of determining what number each of the clinics, including Safeway, um, will be receiving. And then each of those entities is responsible to allocate those vaccines as, you know, they per the guidelines, but also according to their po patient population. Um, yeah. So we don't have a vaccine clinic, but we are giving, we are giving vaccines. We'll have, you know, one vial of six doses and we, or it's supposed to be five doses. We can get six out of it. You can almost get seven out of it if you use a small um, a small enough needle and a lot of states in the lower 48 are trying to really, you know, get the most out of that, those vaccines as possible, but it, it, you do have to use it within a couple hours. And so we do, like um, Dr. Martinson said, need to have kind of it slated for that afternoon or that morning, which patients are going to be receiving that vaccine at a time. So it is logistically intense. Um, everyone has to be monitored 15 to 30 minutes. And again, part of the reason why the vaccine across the nation has been so slow, the, um, the whole rollout process is because there are a lot of these different logistics that are, you know, new and different compared to how we normally give vaccines. Hopefully we will, um, we'll probably streamline a process. It would be great if we did have one kind of vaccine station some states are doing where you've got your EMTs helping observe patients for 15 minutes afterwards. You can kind of, you know, people can drive through, get the vaccine, wait it out in their car for 15 minutes and have someone monitoring them where it's really more of a kind of, um, you can give a lot of vaccines in a short amount of time rather than using a nurse for 15 minutes every every shot. Are you saying that for your clients, the, rather than go to the portal and try and schedule themselves, that they contact your office and they do the scheduling? Right now, do both. You can sign up um, through the portal. We do want the portal to work. We want to have, you know, a kind of centralized database where everybody is kind of going through and all those numbers get reported to the state. But at the same time, a lot of the websites are not patching through to kind of that end result, to that end team. And so we want to make sure that you don't just sign up on the website and then nothing happens for a month and you miss your opportunity because you thought the website was working perfectly. Um, so right now I would say, you know, do both. And as we kind of iron out the wrinkles in this process, hopefully eventually the website will be, um, you know, accurate in the way to get through. But for now, don't rely on it. Like we rely, you know, we had to keep calling, even though we signed up on the website and the backtrack, we still, we realized that nothing had been done with the application through a backtrack and, and some of the links weren't working. A lot of the, a lot of the kind of links and downstream processes are not actually working. A lot of them are broken at this point. Um, so call the clinic right now, at least that's the recommendation. Okay. So for, for somebody that even if you find a clinic like on the website, if you're scheduling, actually trying to schedule an appointment, I would definitely call, at least for us, yeah, you, I would want you to call the clinic and make sure that you're on the list there uh, getting an appointment. And I would say that as of right now, just for us, our clinic right now, because we don't have the vaccine in, in hand at this point in time, we're actually right now not scheduling people for an actual appointment, but we're presuming that we will be getting it next week and starting to actually schedule patients. But if patients call our clinic, what we're doing now is putting them on a wait list, and then we will be calling them back once we have the vaccine in hand. Okay, just, just so I'm clear on this, so we, we have somebody that's 70 years old in town that wants to schedule themselves 
for a vaccine and they're a regular um, client patient at, at your clinic, what do they do? Do they just call y- your clinic and say, I want to come in and get a vaccine next week and it's handled? Or do they need to go to the portal, make an appointment on the po- the portal, I'm assuming, and that that sort of there there has to be at some point some uh, some tracking of how much how many appointments are being made compared to how much vaccine we have right I mean if you have what what's the demand I mean how many people over 65 do we have in the community and how much vaccine is available starting next week yeah so we I, I can only speak to our our clinic particularly. Um, and I don't know what to tell you really about the statewide portal as far as like the all the logistics that go into that. I agree with Shanna that I think that it's probably going to be honed in over time. And so I, I hate to tell people to just ignore it. But I but I also would say that if you want to guarantee like if you want to know if you're going to have an appointment, I, I wouldn't I think scheduling through the individual clinic or, or pharmacy would be good. And I would encourage much like with the testing, if you have a primary care provider trying to do your vaccine through your primary care provider, if that's possible, um, that that helps. Um, the, um, the the challenge, like how many people is is are we going to be looking to vaccinate? So we we actually did a record of our our clinic as far as how many people 65 and older we have, and it was somewhere between 600 and 700 patients. And so we took that into account when we requested our vaccine from the state. We took that into account. We requested enough vaccine to cover our patients, and so. Um, like I said, we don't have that vaccine necessarily in hand yet, so I can't tell you how much we actually are going to have, but that's what we're trying to do is trying to match the, the supply to the demand. So I'm going to throw another wrench into this, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so we've actually been, uh, putting all of our patients into a database and actually pulling out the highest risk people and calling them. Um, and so they, our patients have been getting calls and getting them scheduled that way. We did get some, uh, vaccine, we did get some vaccines earlier than, uh, others. And we have been administering to high risk over 65, but it is by a method where we are calling them. Um, so I, I can't, I don't know what to tell you about the portal and stuff. I think it is good if we all start using it. And maybe we can get it working appropriately uh, into the future. But right now, Canada is calling our patients in an orderly manner so that people who need it the most get calls first. We, we did the same thing. We ran our patient numbers. I think there was 300 that were elderly and high risk, you know, kind of meet that the, this early stage of vaccine administration. And we are calling them as well. And a lot of them might overlap. You know, we might have them on our, we might have seen them at one point, but they are actually a Canna or a KCHC patient now. So there might be some overlap in our numbers. Um, I think the borough or the Kodiak Island, I don't know, whoever the overseeing team on this probably has all of the Kodiak um, census numbers. And I don't, I don't have those in front of me, but I will say VacCheck is the system right now being used to document who got what vaccine, what date, what lot number, all that information. So that, you know, if you do have an issue, that's how we're going to be tracking it back from there. And VacCheck, it's a um, kind of statewide, or I think it's nationwide, but definitely Alaska state, you know, we put all of our vaccines into there so that we kind of have the pooled information about who's gotten what vaccines. And that's kind of how we've done the application process. And we're really trying to use that as our centralized kind of database. So next week is starting tomorrow when the, or today, I think when the portal opens for the 65 folks, that's the first time we are actually using this tracking thing to start tracking the allocation of the, of the vaccines, right? I mean, the the 1A and 1B group, they didn't need to do it this way. I, I'm just thinking about how, you, how we're going to deal with it once we get down to the bigger tiers down the road of how we're going to start doing that allocation. Because from the three of you just now, I heard uh, numbers well in excess of 1,000. And if we only have 1,000 vaccines available throughout the community and then Safeways in this somehow um, you know it's sure sure seems to me like if you're thinking you're gonna 
get an appointment to get a vaccine starting next week sometime that for some of the folks in that population, they're not going to be able to do it because we don't have the vaccine available. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, this is one of the, like, I, I think there's a part of me when I heard the state, the state kind of moved forward with trying to get the vaccine out quicker than what was initially, rec like they initially thought, you know, we were kind of preparing for this 1B phase to start in like two or three weeks, not this next week. And um, so I, part of that is a little bit surprising to me and is going to lead to some of this. You can even hear these different clinics are doing this differently, even in town. And so um, I think that there is some confusion out there. I, I guess my takeaway from just even talking on this, uh, talking to the other providers here in this call is that even if you use the online portal for the state, which I think we'd all encourage you to go there and, and look at it, um, calling the clinic is going to be necessary in order to schedule an appointment. I, I, I hear that from all, all three of us is that in order to schedule an appointment, you'd have to call the clinic. Okay. Um, I think that the other thing that I would really highly recommend, is, as I've done before, is that if you have an established clinic trying to get your vaccines through that clinic, that will kind of be, I think, a more orderly way of getting this done and also will help us to uh, be able to, um, it'll probably make it so no single clinic gets overrun with too much uh, because we're taking care of our patient population in general. Um, now that's not a, a full rule. It may be that one of us does get overwhelmed and we need the others to help, but in general, I think that that's probably a, a good way to approach it. And then if you don't have a provider in town, maybe that's where Safeway comes in. Maybe that's a good, a good opportunity for Safeway to pick up some of these patients that aren't really established or establish care with one of the clinics. And then you can, you know, get your vaccine through that clinic. I think that those are some general, general sort of reasonable ways that we can keep this fairly orderly and um, allow people to get vaccinated in, a, in a, an efficient way, hopefully. I have a question from a listener who wants to know how a homebound senior would get vaccinated. I'd say for our clinic, give us a call still. Um, we, we will make things work one way or another. Um, but just give your PCP call and, and let them know that you'd like the vaccine, but can't travel outside the home. So home visits are still something doctors do? I do them all the time. I probably do two or three home visits a week. Yeah, probably probably less during the time of COVID. I'm probably doing less. But, um, yeah, I mean, we can, for circumstances like that, I think that we're all probably willing to make the options available. Okay, now some specific questions about these things. Um, how long after you get the shots does it take for immunity to develop? About two weeks to develop antibodies. Um, and then it really, so the vaccine works by exposing your body to, well, the mRNA one is actually the RNA, the genetic instructions to make the protein. Um, first of all, just a kind of really basic how vac or how like genetic <laughs> processing works. DNA makes RNA makes a protein. A lot of people have said, oh, if you get the RNA, it might, you know, get built into your DNA and change you into something else. That is not biologically how RNA works. RNA is kind of a, is kind of a message that is then sent, it's kind of like sending a I don't know, a letter with instructions and then a protein is built from there. So then your body amounts a immune response to that S protein. And what's intended for the, the vaccine effect is basically whenever you see that virus again, when your body sees that S protein that it's already kind of seen through the vaccine, it mounts an immune response against that and has specifically targeted antibodies that kind of neutralize that virus and, and, Tar um, tag it for destruction and then your the rest of your immune system comes in and kills it and sheds it or gets rid of it. Um, so there are some people that could get the virus infection after getting the vaccine because maybe their body doesn't in, like mount a full immune response. And there, you know, we're starting to see that. I think there was a senator or some state representative 
um, that had the vaccine December 18th and, and became positive for COVID after that. So two things to know though, it, um, it decreases your chances of getting infected by like 95%, about 5% of people in their trials got COVID after getting the vaccine and it decreases the severity of the infection. So it's basically kind of primed your immune system to fight the virus off when it's exposed to it you know, later on after getting the vaccine. So a lot's been said about, you know, there, there's a lot of theories going on in different countries and, and different states, actually, about whether or not to delay the second dose of the vaccine, which the FDA apparently isn't recommending. But what, what happens to you in between the first vaccine, the second vaccine, and then the two-week period? Are you, um, a- after you get the first vaccine, do you have any any kind of immunity or is there a reduction in the severity of COVID if you get it? So the, the last numbers I saw was with a single injection that you were about, it was about 56% effective, um, which fr- frankly isn't, isn't bad. Um, the, but with a second injection, you, we end up about 95%. Uh, people uh, like Dr. Theobald who had COVID, maybe she's like 99% protected after kind of three exposures to this. And so she, she might be the, the person who is the super resistant person at this point. Um, but probably with one, in, one inoculation, you're probably about 50, the number I saw was 56% protected. Um, because some people kind of dropped out of the study after one injection and they were able to track those people and see how they did. So then what happens to you after two weeks uh, or after the second one and then the two weeks? I mean, uh, can you still transmit COVID to another person even after you've had vaccinations? Nobody knows. That's that's what it comes down to is we, we don't know. I think it's going to be way less likely because I think your body's going to fight off this virus. And I think even if you get it, you're probably not going to have symptoms and you're there. It's probably not going to reproduce in your body to any great extent. And so you might be a carrier, but at such a low level that you wouldn't be able to transmit it to other people. Um, there's no bulletproof thing though. You may be part of the 5% who really didn't get a vigorous immune response. Um, I know the, the, what we're telling people is you got to still wear a mask. You got to still protect the people around you. But I, I'm just trying to throw a little bit of a ray of sunshine out there that I do think that once you get the vaccination, that it's going to be way less likely that you're going to transmit it to others. But the truth of the matter is we don't know what that number is. But for a, an individual's uh, own behavior, once they get the two shots and they pass the two weeks by, can they then go about their regular life as they did before the covid and, uh, you know, go out in public without a mask on and travel and feel like uh, they don't have anything to worry about again? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that the, the, the short answer is no. Um, probably it's a little premature to say that. Um, I think there is going to be, you know, let's say we get a few months down the road and we have the, the majority of our... Um, kind of most vulnerable population covered, I think that there's going to be some, there's going to have to be some discussion and, and regarding like what, like, how do you sort of reopen and, and, and do this? And honestly, I, I'm, I feel like I've been so in the moment that we're in right now. I haven't had a lot of time to think about that (laughs) to tell you the truth. Um, But I think that for right now, because we still have such low levels of community immunity, I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but um, the uh, since we have such low levels there, um, I think that it would be pretty unwise to just all of a sudden be like, okay, I'm bulletproof and I'm you know going to do everything I can do. Um, but um, it will be interesting to see at what level, and I think we're going to know more about the vaccine too as time goes on. At what level do we kind of say like, you know what, we've got such a great majority of our population covered, including our most vulnerable. At what point do we kind of just open things up back to normal? And I, I don't have necessarily an answer for that. So still the, the, the local recommendation in regards to these vaccines, regardless of which one it is, is 
you get the first shot and then three weeks later, is that, that it? You you need to reschedule yourself for the second one? So for the Pfizer, it's 21 days. Uh, and there's a little grace period there. Um, and for the Moderna, it's 28 days. Um, so it's there. And again, there's a little wiggle room around that, but it's basically three to four weeks after, uh, depending on which vaccine you get. So what we'll, what we will do is when we vaccinate you the first time, we'll schedule you for that second appointment at the same, t- uh, just so that you have that um, already on the books. Is there any benefit whatsoever to getting, I know we talked about this a little bit earlier, but there are, there's some resistance from some people to get an RNA vaccination and they're waiting for, you know, the traditional vaccine to come. Between the Pfizer and the Moderna, is there any reason why anybody would prefer to go get one? Uh, I mean, if your clinic only has Pfizer and your clinic only has Moderna, why would somebody, why would somebody go? Is there any reason why why you would want one rather than the other? I mean, the the studies are eerily similar in their results. Like, I mean, they really are very very similar. I I don't know that I, you could probably get into the weeds a little bit more, but um, the fact is they're very similar in effectiveness and they're very similar in their safety profile. I think there's going to be slight variability from Moderna's studies and Pfizer's uh, studies, but I don't think there's a real difference. I think there's just variability from study to study. It's to the point where, uh, we discussed this last week, but if you got the Pfizer vaccine the first time and went back and accidentally got the Moderna vaccine the second time, they say, you're good. You're you're immunized at that point. Um, we, We wouldn't want that to happen, but we would consider you immunized at that point. Um, I, I think there's very, very little difference between the two vaccines. When I was reading the side effect profiles and even like storage issues, you know, we, we have discussed in depth about how the Pfizer has to be at a much colder temperature and Moderna is not quite as cold. It'll probably all be the same in the end once it's truly studied. Um, but we, we just haven't had a lot of time to tease out all of the data. I went down kind of the rabbit hole. I got a, a email from a patient with, you know, kind of sending me some videos about doctors that are saying, you know, vaccines are dangerous and here's all the information that they've, you know, researched over these years. And I will tell you the RNA vaccine compared to the AstraZeneca, which is kind of that more that traditional model where they kind of package part of the coronavirus into an adenovirus, which is a common cold virus. Um, and some of the other, even more traditional ones, the RNA vaccine is the cleanest. It's got salt, sugar, fatty lipids to make the membrane and the mRNA. It has the least side effect profile of any vaccines. It doesn't have any of the, you know, heavy metals, toxic chemicals that try to kind of induce that um, immune response. And as far as how it how we've seen it affect your immune system, it doesn't cause your immune system to react. You know, a lot of the autoimmune um, reactions that people were afraid of, a lot of kind of the ways that it primes your immune system that might actually put it at risk later on down the line. Um, some vaccines kind of do tend to do that. And there, you know, there is, there is evidence, there is some evidence that these doctors are quoting that is important and we need to kind of look into it more and figure out what's going on. But as far as the RNA vaccines go, I spent hours till like two o'clock in the morning the other night after I got this email researching. And I, if you really kind of look at the data, look at the evidence, dig further, don't just watch that YouTube video and then make your opinion based on that. Really go and kind of delve into some of the sources that these people are citing. And I was absolutely convinced that of all the vaccines, you know, that are the safest that we have on the market now, this RNA one is the safest. And and think about it this way. Some people say, well, you're making the spike protein that might kind of stimulate an autoimmune response against other proteins in your body. So then you now your body's going to react against those, um, you know, organs or whatever. But when you get sick with the coronavirus, your body translates all the mRNA into proteins anyways. You already make that spike protein from the infection. So your body is going to be primed to those, you know, to kind of target those proteins 
more from the infection than actually, you know, this little bit of mRNA that makes that spike protein. Um, and as far as the studies go, there's been no kind of like cross-reactivity or autoimmune um, reaction. So I, I really want to put the message out to people that this is the safest vaccine that we have as, you know, as far as we know so far, mRNA vaccines have been studied for several years, um, decades really, and the safety profile from all those studies over all the years, they haven't really been used yet, but they were being studied for cancer. And um, all the data we have from that shows that they're really safe and effective as well. So I want people to know that and, and feel like, you know, of all the vaccines you get, this one is an excellent vaccine. And are, are we seeing any, is there any concern on you at all about the reactions that were originally reported? Has that increased at all? Is there any reason for somebody not to take this vaccine? The um, allergic reaction, the response, which is still primarily thought to be due to the polyethylene glycol, all of the salts and sugars are native. They're already in your system. There's a small amount of salt and sugar to kind of, you know, keep that mRNA suspended inside that lipid capsule. Um, it's just a tiny amount. It's 0.3 mils that you get of this whole vaccine. But um, the reactions are probably to polyethylene glycol. Polyethylene glycol is in almost every vaccine. It's in your common, you know, annual flu vaccine. And so the chances that, you know, we probably have a lot more reactions to the flu vaccine and we just haven't, you know, paid such close attention as we are to this new vaccine that's being rolled out. And so far from what I, the data that I've seen so far, there's been no increase in percentage of severe allergic reactions. We're still kind of, I think we had our, um, but I, I think there's only been a few, a handful of allergic reactions in the state so far. I haven't heard of any in Kodiak. So what what is our plan for the people that uh, aren't eligible to take the vaccine? The, the, the under 16 population and the, the pregnant women and the other people that have been excluded. Well, what are we going to do for them? We're going to continue to study it and see for safety safety profile uh, profiles among these age groups. Um, we're going to continue to look at, uh, we're going to open up new studies into the future. And I think within the year, we will have a, a better safety profile for other populations. And uh, once again, to echo uh, what Shanna said, they... They have been, this type of immunization was first studied in 1989. So it's, it's been around for a very long time. It's uh, to use the, the um, idea I had before, it's almost like uh, having a drill and we've, we've had to develop this drill. The only thing we're changing out is the bit. And so now we, now we have a, a new bit that we use. Um, it doesn't mean that we have a whole new system. It's one that's been studied. And we talked about this last week that Moderna was founded on the idea of developing mRNA vaccinations. And they started in 2010. So they've been around for 10, 11 years now. Um, so it is, it's not a brand new science. It, it's one that we've been studying for a while. New question. If a person is allergic to penicillin, can they still get a shot? Yes, they can. And actually, ACOG, the American College of um, Obstetrics and Gynecology, recommends that, as far as we know, there's no reason even for a pregnant or breastfeeding woman not to get the vaccine. It just wasn't studied in that population. But as far as, you know, all the effects we have so far, it will not affect the fetus. It doesn't affect the mom. It doesn't affect, if anything, you're going to give antibodies through breast milk through to breastfeeding your child, which will give them some protective immunity. So just so people know, it's not a contraindication if you're pregnant or breastfeeding. It just means you should have a conversation with your doctor and make, you know, everyone should make the decision that they feel is best for them. Um, but yeah. Do you guys still have a few more minutes? I have two more questions. We just lost Dr. Mortensen. Um, thanks. Yes. Um, could you expound on the 78% of COVID survivors having some heart damage? Uh, can you say if this is all patients or just those who were hospitalized? So this was actually patients who had mild to moderate symptoms. Uh, some of them... Uh, this was kind of a random study and actually people who were hospitalized, I'm not sure they were even included in the study, 
Um, so it wasn't like it was seriously ill people. Um, we, we've kind of talked about the effects on the heart. It actually infects the cells of the heart and does affect how they function. And when we say that, uh, so they did MRIs of these hearts uh, to see how they were functioning and there were changes. That's all we can really say at this point, how serious those changes are. Well, they range from the patient would have never even known about it if we hadn't studied it to people needing a heart transplant. Um, but it also, my, my uh, I've, I've talked about some of the things that uh, we discuss, we're still learning, and, and some things that we say on this show are going to be wrong. I mean, you look, and one even one thing that I was talking about um, a couple weeks ago, I got more information on it, the way it affects the brain. Uh, they're getting more information on autopsy studies that when they've looked at the brains of, of COVID patients, there's actually little micro uh, hemorrhagic strokes all over the brain of COVID positive patients who have gotten into that kind of fogginess and, and can't think straight and having headaches, headaches, there's little micro bleeds all over the brain. So my analogy was the, the, the football player disease from the, the numerous, uh, concussions of that relates to chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, is even more appropriate. I was thinking that there's probably little blood clots showering into the brain causing many strokes of where the blood clot blocks um, blood flow to parts of the brain, but that doesn't appear to be what's going on. It actually appears that the brain is getting infected, causing leakiness in the blood vessels so that you're having little micro hemorrhagic strokes all over the brain, which is more consistent with a concussion where we, where we have trauma to the brain and there's a small bleed. The, the tough part about this that's a little bit scary is we've, we've talked about it before, but with the chronic traumatic encephalopathy, it, it leads to what we talked about last week with, with some of the psychiatric illnesses, including depression, anxiety, early onset Alzheimer's, um, headaches, uh, chronic fatigue. And this could be the explanation behind a lot of these issues going on. But that study uh, just came out in the past week, I think, that where, where they were looking at autopsies of the brains of COVID, uh, people who died of COVID. So more interesting findings trying to figure out what's actually going on with this disease. That, that means that the studies are being done on people who passed away because of COVID or something related, right? That they're doing a brain study. There, yeah. Is there a way to do a brain study on somebody before they die? So the tough part is even with an MRI, um, it, it, this is getting down to such fine detail that we'd probably see changes in a year or two because uh, as Shannon and I look at, she and I order a ton of MRIs of brains over the years. And one of the common reports that we get back is uh, white matter changes consistent with microvascular disease. Um, that's probably what we're going to see is kind of a shrinking of the brain after being after having these types of symptoms where your brain actually physically shrinks because of what is thought is microvascular disease. Um, I, I would be curious uh, what your thoughts are on that, Dr. Theobald. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree. I read the same study about the, about the brain and how COVID really is affecting. We're learning more and more how it is affecting the brain. And yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I've had some patients after COVID have, you know, kind of almost like they feel like they're forgetting things and almost like a kind of very mild dementia type picture and brain fog. Um, and I, I agree, it probably there is some overlapping, you know, the way the process plays out is a little bit different, but overlapping, overlapping symptoms, how that kind of presents clinically. Well, for the folks who contract COVID and recover uh, seemingly with mild symptoms or moderate symptoms, uh, and the thought is it's all over with, but for long-term prognosis and for, uh, for care, I mean, what, what are you planning on doing in the long term to treat people who have had COVID? Is there, is there anything somebody can do to improve their, you know, long, the long-term effects of this? I think uh, just don't get it. I mean, to be honest, if you've had it already, 
uh, I, I don't know what to say. We're still learning about it. I'm hoping all these things get better, um, that everybody their everybody's heart returns to normal function, um, that people's brains heal themselves to a certain extent. Uh, but I, 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 it has really pushed me. I, my patients will know that I recommend vaccines, but I'm not one of these people's harping on you that you got to get your flu vaccine and stuff like that. I, I, I'm more of the, you. Do, I'll present the information, you do what you want to do. I, I highly recommend this vaccine. Um, this is one of the few that I'm like, people are worried about, well, we just don't know what this vaccine is going to do. Well, the problem is we know what COVID does. And if I'm going to be a gambling man and say, I don't have all the information on this vaccine, um, so I'm worried about it, I know the downside to COVID. And yep, the, the majority of the people after three months really have no significant side effects. Um, and people say, well, you don't know what that vaccine is going to do in three years. We don't know what people who are positive for COVID are going to be like in three years. Is it going to bring on some of these scary things of possible early Alzheimer's and other issues that could go along with it? I have no idea. There are already clinics being set up that are specialists dealing with post-COVID syndrome. There are already standing clinics to deal with the, the, the survivors of COVID. It is a big deal. And, and we're, there's going to be specialists in this area that people travel to. Well, there are, already are, but there's going to be even more developed specialists in the area of post-COVID syndrome. At this point, I don't know what you can do to treat them, though. They are looking at um, steroids, you know, that kind of calm down that inflammatory response later, but that doesn't fix damage that's been done. And and the studies from the SARS um, coronaviruses and MERS did show some of these people had effects for lingering for three years afterwards. And, you know, being in the coronavirus family, that's very like that's very well could be the case. And how much of that damage is reversible? That's going to be the big question. We don't know yet. And there are other um, like supplements like quercetin is an anti-inflammatory and kind of boosts your whole body's immune system. And I know, I think it was the University of Virginia where some of those frontline critical care doctors um, were saying, you know, use ivermectin and quercetin is one of their, vitamin D is part of their protocol. So there are, there probably, we will find some treatments that are really helpful, but it'll need to be studied because, you know, right now something might look really good, but is it actually making a difference on a big picture um, that will kind of remain to be determined? And finally, how concerned should we be about these new variants? The, the new highly transmissible one that uh, kind of was first discovered in Great Britain and then seen in South Africa also. Um, being honest with you, it doesn't bother me that much. Um, I feel like it is it is out there. It's We're probably going to have more dominant virus strains that are highly transmissible that kind of take over, which isn't necessarily a, a terrible thing because it lets us focus the vaccine even better and make sure that it's working on the dominant virus that's going around. There's another one that's uh, just being discovered. I, I want to say it was in South America that uh, has resistance to antibodies. Um, that one's a little more worrisome to me because now we're trying to figure out what, will the vaccine work when this one seems to be somewhat resistant to the antibodies that are developed by, by uh, for treatment of COVID. Um, does that mean it's also going to be resistant to the antibodies of the vaccine? I, I don't know. The big lesson that I take away from this is the longer, the quicker that we can get this disease eradicated, the, the more this disease is floating around, the more chances we have of it mutating and going to harder and harder to treat strains. If we get rid of this disease, there's no chance for it to mutate anymore. So the longer we kind of monkey around with it and say, oh, I don't know if I want to, I want to deal with this. I don't know if I want a vaccine. Um, the, the more chance of mutations that occur and the more chance that we're going to get up with a, a resistant strain that we're going to have a very difficult time with. Um, at this point, yep, a lot of people have died of this, this uh, disease. It, it could potentially get worse.